Good morning. I want to add my welcome uh, to you, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We've been working our way through the Ten Commandments for eight weeks now, and today we'll consider verse 14, the seventh commandment. And in honor and reverence for God's word, would you please stand if you're able as we read God's holy and inspired word. I'll begin by reading the context of verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Because I am your God, and because I have made you my people, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You may be seated. In the United States, the home security industry is a $52 billion industry. A billion dollars every week is spent in an effort to protect the people and the possessions that are most, most valuable to us. By the year 2030, it's estimated that that amount will double to over $100 billion a year spent to safeguard our families, our jewelry, our collectibles, our electronics, all that we consider so important and so valuable that we want to do all we can to minimize the risk of loss. When all that money is spent to protect our families and our homes and our cars and our businesses, what is it that we're buying? Protection from financial and loss of possessions, yes. But even more than that, what I think we're buying is peace of mind. We want, to, we want to protect what is valuable to us. We want to lay our head on our pillow at night, knowing that the most important things are protected. It's important to me that my wife will be protected, be, would be provided for should something happen to me. So I buy life insurance, and I have peace of mind that her long-term financial needs will be met. Or when we plant a garden or a flower bed or we, we put a fence around it for, to protect the fruits and the vegetables and the plants from pests and vermin and that most nasty of all creatures, the bunny rabbit. <laughs> we put our seat belts on to protect our lives. We buckle up our little ones in car seats that are like Fort Knox. If we're wise, we take steps. We are diligent to protect what we value. Because when something we value is damaged, we suffer loss. We suffer pain. And we don't want to suffer loss. We don't want to lose what's so valuable to us. So we protect our families, our incomes, our health, our possessions, and anything else that is important and valuable and precious. Today we come to the seventh commandment. Five words in English two words in the original language. You shall not commit adultery. The very first word of this command is an important word. This command is not a broad and general command given to a mass of people. You as a group shall not commit adultery. No, the word you is the second person singular uh, tense. Speaking to one. 
It's as if God is grabbing each person that he led out of Egypt, and he's grabbing each one of us, looking us in the eye, and saying, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. In the world we live in today, a command like that seems almost old-fashioned, doesn't it? I mean, that's so restrictive. Adultery is taken for granted. I mean, in a time when the current statistics estimate that 20 to 40% of men and 20 to 25% of women will cheat on their spouses sometime during their marriage, a command like that seems unre- just seems unrealistic. In a day and age where even the very definition of marriage can't be agreed upon, how can it be expected that some standard of fidelity would, could be upheld? After all, in our, in our broader society, marriage is no longer an institution defined and given to us by God for our good. Instead, marriage is an arrangement defined by us for our pleasure and convenience and based on our preferences. Marriage is an expression of my beliefs, my preferences, defined by me. Marriage is a throwaway item. This one doesn't seem, work, seem to be working Maybe the next one will. Married today, 40% plus divorced tomorrow. Valued, treasured, protected at all costs from all threats, maybe not so much. But God, in the seventh commandment, has not left us in doubt about what is valuable to him. Here God reveals his heart for our marriages. He reveals his desire for our marriages. Our society may be confused about marriage, but God is not confused about marriage. And not only is God not confused about marriage, he's not indifferent about marriage either. And that's why he gives us this commandment. In the seventh commandment, God reveals to us that marriage is valuable and precious and worth protecting. But why this commandment when there were so many other possibilities? I mean, think about it. All that could have been listed here in the top 10. You shall not abuse children. You shall not beat your spouse. You shall not discriminate based on the color of a person's skin. You shall not. I mean, you can fill in the most heinous sin that you can think of into into that blank. Why you shall not commit adultery and not those? I think the reason that God gives us this seventh commandment is to shine a spotlight on the value and importance of marriage, to highlight that this precious gift should be honored and guarded at all costs, and to command us that marriage and all that marriage points to is to be protected. Scripture is filled with instruction about marriage how to live in marriage, how to treat one another in marriage, how to strengthen our marriages. Marriage is a topic, an institution that God is extremely interested in. Eight weeks ago, when Greg laid the groundwork for our series on the Ten Commandments, he said that these commandments were similar to a wedding ceremony. It's been mentioned a number of times since then of this covenant being made between God and his people. God has been at work since the fall, bringing his people to this point where he establishes and defines his relationship with them. It is now, 
at this point that he is building them into a nation. This is the decisive moment. He's giving them the instructions to form them from a ragtag group of tribes, bringing them into the land, and making them a nation. But not just any nation. He's making them into a nation that would represent God before all of the other nations. He is revealing himself to his people, telling them what his will is for their lives. And in the seventh commandment, God is telling them and he's telling us what his will is for our marriages. And what he reveals to us in this commandment is that his will is that marriage, because of its exceedingly great value and because it is precious and because it is life-giving, And because it points to something that is glorious, it is to be honored and guarded at all costs. As we consider this commandment today, my outline is just three points. First, the great gift of marriage. Second, the great gift of sex. And third, a great mystery revealed. First, the great gift of marriage. God has given us this seventh commandment because adultery is an attack on God's great gift of marriage. Adultery is a great evil that ravages and assaults and tears apart something that God has provided to us that is supposed to be beautiful and life-giving. And of all the attacks that assault our marriages day after day, and there are many, there is none greater than this one. Adultery. So God, at the very beginning, in his kindness toward his people coming out of Egypt, and in his kindness toward us, warns us of this great evil. He warns us not to be restrictive, not to ruin our good times, not to make us miserable, but to protect us and guide us toward the most wonderful relationship you will have on this earth. Here is God prepares his people to go into the promised land and not just to live in the land, but to live in the land in a way that expresses their relationship to him. He reminds them to protect the gift that he has given to them and to us at the very beginning of creation. Because in the beginning, God created us male and female, equal in value before God, but different. But not just different from one another in random ways different from one another in complementary ways. Not just created next to one another, but created for one another. In Genesis 2.18, it only takes us until the middle of the second chapter of the Bible to get here. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make a helper fit for him. A helper suitable for him. Throughout the first chapter in Genesis in the creation account, we read over and over again that things are good. It was very good. Good, good, over and over. And then in Genesis 1:31, after God saw everything he had made, he pronounced that it was very good. But then in chapter 2, as the creation account is filled out, when God looks at Adam, the crown of his creation, he sees something that is not good. The first thing in all of Scripture that we see that is not good 
is that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. So God makes a helper fit for him, a woman made from Adam's rib, and God brought her to Adam. And in Genesis 2.23, we read the first recorded words out of Adam's mouth. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Can you hear the satisfaction and pleasure in Adam's words? It's almost as if he is saying, all right, now we're on to something. Now we're talking. This, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then in Genesis 2.24, we see God's perspective on what just happened. There it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to, cleave to, cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What happened here was a uniting. They were no longer two autonomous individuals seeking their own pleasure and satisfaction. They no longer were just two people casually relating to one another. They were one flesh. An entirely new family unit was created. Man and woman are profoundly united by God in the closest possible relationship. It is an amazing, incredible uniting. Jesus, in his teaching on marriage and divorce, comments on this verse in Matthew 19.6. First, he quotes Genesis 2.24, so they are no longer two but one flesh. And then he adds his own authoritative word by adding, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is what God has joined together. Yes, when we go to the wedding, the bride and the groom stand together in front of all those witnesses, family and friends, all dressed up, looking good. The pastor leads them in their vows to one another, but the pastor and the groom and the bride are not the main actors at the wedding. God is the main actor. It is God supernaturally joining them together. We exchange vows, we give rings, we light the unity candle, we kiss the bride. But the most significant action in any wedding is what God does. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God has made the two into one flesh, never to be separated again until death. Before Tammy and I were married, we were just that, Lauren and Tammy. We were two, loved being together, had fun together, enjoyed each other's company, but we were two. But on July 20, 1984, God joined us together as one. The two became one. On that day, in that moment, our previous allegiances changed. The family I grew up with was no longer my number one concern. Tammy was number one. Tammy's family was no longer her first priority. I was her first priority. God has joined us together as one, not to be separated. 
So when we come to Exodus 20, verse 14, we should see, and we see God say, you shall not commit adultery. We should not be surprised. Adultery, sexual union between a married person and someone who is not their spouse, does violence to this divinely created union. Adultery intrudes on this sacred covenant. Adultery breaks the marriage covenant. And its consequences are vast. Broken hearts. Trust shattered. Futures thrown into turmoil and question. Financial consequences. Security destroyed. Families torn apart. Extended families drawn into the pain. Children crushed and confused. Churches weakened. And even whole cultures paying the price. Adultery is a serious, serious sin. And that's at least partially why under the old covenant, the penalty for this sin was death. Death for the man and death for the woman. Now, if we think that penalty seems harsh, we have to remember that God's judgments are right and true and perfect. So if we think that the old covenant penalty is too harsh, it reveals not that the penalty is wrong, but that our view of the seriousness of the sin is too low. It exposes our error, not God's. God has a very high view of marriage. The commitment and exclusivity of marriage is treasured by God. It is the first institution established in all of history. Before any cities or governments, clubs, before anything else, God established marriage. It's the first and the most intimate of all human relationships. When that relationship is trivialized, the very fabric of a culture is damaged and threatened. In his book on biblical ethics, Wayne Grudem writes about J.D. Unwin, a British anthropologist who studied and chronicled the historical decline of 86 different cultures. What he found was that strict marital monogamy was so central to social energy and growth that no society flourished for more than three generations without it. Unwin wrote this, In human records, there is no instance of a society retaining its energy after a complete new generation has inherited a tradition which does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial continence, that is, abstinence from sex outside of marriage. The effects of unfaithfulness are everywhere in our society. Faithfulness taken lightly. Promises broken without even a thought. Suspicion about others and about their motives. Trust given to others slowly, if at all. Adultery is an attack on one of God's most precious gifts. Marriage, created by God and given to us for our good, for our joy, for our blessing, for our intimacy, for our security. So why the seventh commandment? The seventh 
commandment urges you, whether you are young or old, whatever your story is to this point, the seventh commandment instructs you to honor and guard this, this most precious gift from God, the gift of marriage. Second, the great gift of sex. This is where my grandkids get embarrassed. Adultery is also prohibited in the seventh commandment because adultery disfigures God's gift of sex. Adultery disfigures God's gift of sex. The sexual relationship was created by God for intimacy in marriage. Going back again to Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and the woman who were two are now one flesh, totally united. This includes, but is not only, a physical union. And in fact, this physical union gives expression to the marriage bond, which is so much more than just a physical union. But the physical union in marriage does serve an important purpose. It seals and protects the marriage bond. If there is not a reasonable level of frequency in the physical part of your marriage relationship, that is something for you as a couple to talk about. Not because of having a sex problem, but because the physical union is an expression of the spiritual and emotional union. It is an indicator. Tim Keller called the sexual relationship in marriage covenant cement. It strengthens the marriage. It solidifies. It nurtures the marriage. And God blesses the marriage through that bond. He gives us joy. He gives us contentment. He gives us true intimacy. So many in our society today are looking for intimacy, but they're settling for sex. And through that bond, to give us blessing, he also enables us to fulfill our calling given in Genesis 1.22 to be fruitful and multiply. Through the physical union in marriage, God gives us the gift of children. In this union, families are built. When families are built, societies are strengthened. And when societies are strengthened, everyone gains. So sexuality is God's gift to us, given for our delight, given to strengthen us, given to bless us. And the seventh commandment protects that gift. It builds walls of protection around what is valuable. The commandment is not a pleasure-killing prohibition. Rather, it's a warning. Here is an incredible gift. Protect this. This is precious. This is life-giving. This is valuable. Don't take it lightly. So much of what is watched and read and heard and joked about. Treat sex as if it is a minor thing. Sex is treated casually. It's small. It's no big deal. It's just sex. But that's not God's view. In God's view, there is no such thing as casual sex. It is a great gift to be delighted in to have joy in, to enjoy intimacy in. It is not small. 
it is a big deal. And it's worth protecting because it is precious in God's sight. We need to understand that sex outside of marriage is not prohibited because sex in and of itself is bad. Not because it is bad, but because it is powerful. Inside of marriage, sex is powerful for intimacy and uniting and bonding and love. In the hand of God and practice according to God's plan, it is powerful for the good of his people. But taken outside the context of marriage, sex is powerful not for good, but for pain. Outside marriage, sex is powerful for destruction, for regret, for shame, for violation of trust and people and promises. Now you may be thinking, well, I'm good on this one. I haven't broken this commandment. Never violated my marriage, never violated anyone else's marriage. But last week, just as we saw with murder, the intent of the command, the intent of the law, goes far beyond the physical commission of the act. In the case of murder, it extends to hatred and all those feelings and emotions that may lead up to committing murder. In the case of adultery, it extends beyond the commission of the physical act as well. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus reaches into and reveals the heart of this commandment and exposes all of the flawed interpretations of his day and of ours. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we hear those words, and the game changes. Jesus goes back to the seventh commandment and reveals the true intention of the command. And when he revealed the full extent of the seventh commandment, the heart of everyone hearing that him that day on the mount and I dare say, the heart of everyone hearing him here today is exposed. Jesus tells us that, that this commandment prohibiting, adult, prohibiting adultery is far more reaching than the physical act. God looks into the heart. The physical act is only the outward expression of an inward desire. But Jesus tells us that it, it is the desire itself that is defiling and is forbidden. So it's not only the physical act of adultery that is forbidden, but it is lustful thoughts as well. Look at verse 28. Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Another way we might say that is that everyone who looks at a woman for the purpose of lusting for her. Do you see what's being said there? The sin is not in looking. The sin is not in noticing. The sin is in the intent. For the purpose of lusting. Desire. So the question we must ask ourselves is why? Why am I looking? Why am I looking at this picture? 
Why am I looking at this person? Why am I watching this video? Why am I watching this scene in this movie? If the purpose is to arouse lust in your heart or to imagine immoral acts or to play out sinful scenarios in your mind, you have violated this command because you have committed the sin that leads to adultery. Just as hate leads to murder, lust leads to adultery, to, sexually, to sexual immorality, to disfiguring the God-given gift of sexuality. And as someone who has lived 60 years, I know I don't look it, but I have, 60 years, as someone who has seen and witnessed and heard about things, please understand this. This sin, as all sin, but particularly this sin, is not without consequence. This sin will cost you. This sin will enslave you. This sin will not satisfy you. This sin is playing with fire. Proverbs 6, 27 and 28, in a section of Proverbs containing warnings against adultery, we read this. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? You will not be unaffected by this sin. It is a trap inviting you, enticing you to take the first step. Don't do it. Don't take that step. Don't think, well, I'll just, well, maybe, maybe just this once. You cannot carry fire next to your chest and not be burned. You cannot walk down that path without your feet being burned. But sexual sin doesn't just expose us to temporal consequences. It exposes us to eternal consequence. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we read, Or do you not know, Paul, Paul kind of says, Don't you know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This sin has eternal consequence which is why Jesus proposes such drastic action to avoid this sin. Immediately following what we've already read in Matthew 5, in in Matthew chapter 5, we read in verses 29 and 30, Jesus says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now clearly, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He is not proposing that we literally mutilate our bodies. But just because he is using hyperbole, we should be sure, still be sure that we don't miss the point. The point is, is that we should take significant, immediate, drastic action to avoid the sin of adultery to avoid the sin of lust. This is not a sin 
that comes upon us suddenly. It doesn't happen in an instant. It is far more subtle, far more deceptive than that. It begins with a lustful look, an imagining of possibilities, a pondering of scenarios, chance meetings that maybe aren't so chance. Oh, loved ones, do not go there. If you're married, don't go there. If you're single, don't go there. And if you've already taken steps in that direction, turn back. Don't stay where you are and don't dig yourself deeper. This sin will not satisfy you. It will enslave you and it will destroy you. So at the first look, cut it off. At the first imagining, cut it off. At the first thought, cut it off. And at the same time, it needs to be emphasized that you must not be paralyzed by guilt. Oh, it's, it's too late for me. I've sinned too much. I'm in too deep. That's a lie. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. But loved ones, don't try to overcome this sin by yourself. Involve others. There are brothers and sisters in Christ right here that want to help you. Turn to your MC, MC leaders. Talk to a pastor. Get help from those in your huddle. I'm confident in saying they don't want to condemn you. They want to help you. And for those of you who are turning away from this sin, for those of you who are engaged in this battle, be encouraged. In 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, or 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, right after what we just read related to those not inheriting the kingdom of God, we read these beautiful, encouraging, life-giving words. Paul said, and such were, were, past tense, were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our sin is not the end of the story. God's mercy and grace is the end of the story. So let us not treat God's gift as a small, insignificant matter, God's gift of sex. And let us not disfigure God's gift of sex with the sin of adultery. Third, a great mystery revealed. Our marriages are valued by God. If you are married here today, God values your marriage. He gives us the powerful gift of sexual intimacy to strengthen our marriages. He gives us the gift of marriage and the gift of sex within marriage to be guarded and protected. But as wonderful as all of that is, and it is wonderful, as wonderful as all of that is, our marriages are but a shadow, a picture of something else. Every time you or I are faithful to our spouse, every time we keep this commandment, we are pointing somewhere else. Your marriage is not all about you. 
As much as our marriages are a blessing, our marriages are not about us. Rather, they are pointing to a greater marriage, a greater covenant. Your marriage is pointing to a different groom and a bride that he is preparing for himself. The institution of marriage is a revealing relationship. It reveals something of God's relationship to us, to his church. Marriage is not just an institution meant to bless us, not just to strengthen society, not just to provide a place to care for and nurture for children. It is all of that, but it is so much more. Marriage is given as a gift from God to speak to us, to communicate something to us. And we see it throughout the Old Testament, God's relationship with his people. Over and over again, God likens his relationship to a husband and a bride, represented both in his faithfulness and his faithfulness in that relationship and Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel's spiritual adultery against God. Again and again, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, liken God's relationship with his people to, the, to a groom and a bride. And then Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, reveals a wonderful mystery. A mystery that is hinted at and partially revealed in the Old Testament and now is revealed to us more fully. He reaches all the way back to to the beginning of Genesis, to Genesis 2.24, the establishment of marriage that we read earlier. And then the mystery is revealed, the true meaning and intent of marriage. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When the mystery is revealed, it turns out that the meaning of your marriage, the meaning of my marriage is far more significant, far more profound, far more magnificent than we would ever have imagined. Your marriage and my marriage is meant to reveal to the church and to the world Jesus' relationship with the church and with his people. Marriage reveals the wonder of the relationship that Christ has with his church. Marriage is meant to be a showcase of God's sacrificial service to his bride, a display of his faithful love for his bride, a picture of his covenant-keeping faithfulness toward his bride. That's what the Bible is all about. From the creation account where marriage is instituted to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation, Jesus is the faithful one pursuing his unfaithful bride. He woos her. He covers her sin. He lays down his life for her. He cures her. He protects her. He loves her. When we protect the gift of marriage and we protect the gift of sex, we are protecting this revealing sign of God's relationship to his church, his relationship to his people. Wayne Grudem in his book on biblical ethics says this, Therefore, if a husband commits adultery, he is portraying Christ as being unfaithful to his people, abandoning them, and not keeping covenant with them. If a wife commits adultery, it's a picture of the church worshiping another God and being unfaithful to Christ. 
Both portrayals are deeply dishonoring to Christ. So when we think about this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, it is about protecting our marriages, yes. It is about protecting sex in marriage, yes. But it is about so much more. It's about protecting this revelation of God to the world about his relationship with the church. Loved ones, when we keep our marriage vows, we are testifying to a Savior that laid down his life to gain a bride. Men, do you want to testify to the world about Christ's relationship with his own? Be faithful to your wife. Love her. Cherish her. Sacrifice for her. Give yourself for her. Love her as Christ loved the church. Women, do you want to show the world how the church relates to our Savior? Submit to your husband. Love him. Respect him. Speak well of him. Honor him. And if you are single, testify to the world through your purity that you are protecting a picture of a groom and a bride devoted only to one another. Testify that you are waiting for the most satisfying relationship there is. So as we come to grips with all that the seventh commandment is, we can't help but be humbled. Guarding God's gift of marriage, protecting God's gift of sex, is a daunting task. How can we do it? Well, praise be to God, Christ came not only to reveal the mystery, but to give us the power to keep it. Our ability to keep the seventh commandment is rooted not in our striving and our, our persistence and our effort. It is rooted in Christ working in us. Because the seventh commandment not only obligates us, but it reveals the Savior to us. It reveals to us the Savior who loves us with a steadfast love, who is loyal, who is covenant-keeping, who loves you with a love that will never let you go. He is a Savior that takes our filthy wedding dress, stained by adultery, lust, and unfaithfulness, and washes them in His blood, making us white as snow. Our hope is not in keeping this commandment. Our ultimate hope is in the one that this commandment points us to. From the beginning of creation to the end of time, marriage points us to our groom. And whether you are here today, married or single, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a, partici you are a participant in the most wonderful marriage imaginable. Hosea 2, 19 and 20 says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, I want to uh, lift up to you today those who have been hurt and wounded by this sin. Those who have been hurt by committing it and those who have been caught in the ripple effects of this sin. Lord, the purpose today is not to bring up uh, past wounds, not to open uh, healed wounds, but Lord, it's to praise you for healing, for the healing and restoration that you've provided. Lord, we pray for more healing and restoration where that's needed. Lord, we thank you today for the gift of marriage and for the gift of sex. But most of all, we thank you for making us your own. We thank you for pursuing us. We thank you that in all of our unfaithfulness, you are faithful every time. Lord, all glory and honor and praise be to your name. Amen.